What is going on, one week season fam? JM to win here. It is <laughs> it is it is 5:08 in the morning on the West Coast. Saturday, week 6. So, if you've followed the site throughout the week, you know I am working on very little sleep right now. So, let's have fun with the chat pod. I mentioned last week that we would start getting the chat pod up around 5 in the evening on the East Coast moving forward. But uh, this is a week, kind of an interesting week in that uh, my sister and her infant child are flying in town this afternoon, which affects me primarily insofar as it's easier for Abby to uh, go to the airport without bringing William along with her. So uh, I'm going to get up at, at two in the afternoon to hang out with him for a little bit and then hopefully get back to sleep and, and maybe get like eight, nine, ten hours today. Catch up a little bit before getting to rosters tonight. So because of that and because this is our kind of time to relax together informally and because we have uh, only three questions this week, I wanted to go ahead and take care of this before going to bed rather than either having to get up randomly in the middle of, of day sleep to record this or getting it to you guys later than normal. So uh, there you go. It's early this week for any of you who are, are around early to look for it. For those of you who are new to the chat pod, the focus here is primarily what we call evergreen type of content. Content that you can come back and listen to a year from now, two years from now, and it will still hold value. So the questions tend to be uh, more about DFS strategy, thinking, roster construction, uh, research, etc., as opposed to slate-specific questions gives us a chance to get some some cool discussions in every single week. Uh, also, again, evergreen content. So be aware that there are uh, over two years worth of chat pods of, available to you. So you can get back in there and see kind of the questions that we've gone over. Some of them, obviously, we cover uh, over and over again to try to hammer in these most important elements for DFS play. But um, yeah, with that... Let's go ahead and dive in. I, I mentioned we have three questions. All three of them give us kind of some space to poke around on some things. Uh, so we'll see how long this week's podcast is. But um, probably try to keep it to 40, 45 minutes or below. I don't know why I always tell you guys that because you can see how long <laughs> you are in the future. You can see how long the podcast is. I currently have no idea. But Let's go ahead and dive in. And the first question comes from Crossover King. Uh, I guess if we didn't have longtime listeners, we wouldn't have any questions this week. Uh, Crossover King asked, when constructing rosters around game environments, uh, if you are confident points are going to be scored, but there's no certainty of touches, does it simply come down to ownership compared to expectation of production? Or are there more layers? So again, basically an offense where you say this offense is going to score points, but the ball is going to be spread around. There's a real balance here because the idea of points being scored in a game, the, the reason why it matters is because you increase the potential for individual players to see ceiling games. It's not good enough for our guys to just get their 15, 20 points. And so a game environment, people tend to get a little a little overexcited about game environments that have a high total, but then have a team that spreads the ball around. Because, yeah, maybe the floor on all of these guys is higher, but a, a couple things come into play. One, it's harder for them to get to ceiling. And two, you're introducing a lot more guesswork. So I always want to think of things in terms of understanding that I need to get nine spots right on a roster. Uh, we talk about it all the time. You don't necessarily have to have all nine hit to win a tournament, but you have to go in assuming that you have to get nine spots correct. Uh, 
on your roster. That's really difficult to do. That's one of the reasons why we like to bet on situations where if one thing goes a particular way, we get to pick up a lot of points at once. Uh, So for example, right now in, in week six, in the player grid, there are a couple quarterback wide receiver combos where basically for me, if I'm playing the wide receiver, I'm also playing that that wide receiver's quarterback because it's rare that that wide receiver hits without that wide receiver's quarterback also hitting. And so the thinking, you know, people think kind of auto think stacks, but you have to think through each situation. So in a situation like that, you're basically saying, if I get this one thing right, and that means I'm likely getting two things right, then let me make sure I have both of those things on my roster, right? So now by getting one thing right, you get two spots on your roster correct. And so that's one of the things that that we're looking for in terms of giving ourselves our, our best shot at getting nine spots on a roster correct. But the other thing that we have to think about is how much guesswork is going into other spots. And so even if a team like the Eagles down the stretch in 2019 when they had so many injuries and were really just throwing to a handful of guys, it, I I didn't need them to score 30-plus points. Or the Bills in 2018 when we first started talking about player blocks with Josh Allen and Robert Foster and Zay Jones. Those were the days. Um, uh, you didn't need those guys to put up 75 combined points all you really needed was for them to get their 50 points and you were way ahead of what you needed at their at their prices same thing with the eagles last year they were spreading or they were keeping the ball in such a, a concentrated distribution of touches that as long as they scored their 20 points as long as they picked up 325 yards of of offense you were actually getting really good production for the salary now the beautiful thing there is I think it was the week 16, 2018 game where against the Dolphins where Josh Allen, you know, popped off for 40 plus points. Josh Allen plus these pass catchers that we had been targeting for weeks went for 70 plus combined points. So with a narrow distribution, you don't need as high of a score from that offense, you know, to get what you're looking for, especially if it's like the Cowboys when they were underpriced at the start of this year and you knew that just this handful of guys was going to see targets, was going to see touches or... Uh, the Bills, who were super cheap in 2018, the Eagles, who were cheap last year, then as long as they get their 20 points and 300, 325 yards of offense, you're still going to be in good shape for the salary that you spent. But also because it's the NFL and and you know things happen, points are scored, on that week when one of these offenses does score 30 points, you're now getting monster scores from, you know, two spots, three spots, four spots, whatever it is, at these low price tags. And so the narrower distributions are more valuable than just high game totals. You know, all things considered, generally speaking, I'm going to prefer uh, a, a team with a narrow distribution of touches and cheap price tags and an expectation of 20 points over a team with a broader distribution of touches and high price tags and a shot at 30 points for their team. And so we see a lot of this. We see it with the Falcons over the years. Really heavy ownership because the Falcons are in a high projected game total. But that's basically saying, okay, so if everything goes right and you guess on the right player, that player is probably going 4x their high salary. But because you're now introducing extra guesswork, when they miss, they're missing harder and they're hurting your roster. Like, the outside of the handful of like 50 point Julio Jones games or uh, the the three touchdown Calvin Ridley games, you know, the Falcons have hurt you way more often than they've helped you over the last couple of years, but they still draw disproportionately high ownership because they have these high game totals and, and people flock to that. So yeah, with, with the high game totals, but the ball spread around, I'm basically trying to ask myself, how much guesswork am I taking on? So if a team is you know, never concentrating targets on a single guy, or if the targets are always you know, swinging to different guys, 
That doesn't mean I'm necessarily just not going to go to that spot. But I now am marking that spot down as one of my spots with more guesswork. And that's not uh, some sort of formula that I have. Um, I should make that clear. I'm not actively, you know, writing down this, this play has more guesswork. And so, you know, now I adjust this way, but it's all kind of feel based and, and you know, week by week, uh, sort of how much risk you ultimately have to take on. But if you're trying to eliminate that risk as much as you can, that's, uh, that's a key part there is understanding the places where you are taking on risk. And so people get really excited about and it it has happened because there's been such a focus on matchups instead of game environments. So people get really excited about the good player in a good matchup. But if that player is on a team that's spreading the ball around and you know you don't know for sure that that player is going to be the one who sees the volume, you're now guessing on volume and you don't feel like you're guessing on production even if volume is there because you know we're research based and it's like and by we I mean the DFS community and when you find something where all the research lines up it's like oh well <clears throat> this is obviously going to work out 100% of the time and people are always surprised when it doesn't work out realistically you're not going to find <clears throat> excuse me you're not going to find many 80% bets to pay off you're not going to find many 70% bets to pay off for the types of scores we're looking for. If you can find a 40, 45% bet for the types of scores we're looking for, you feel tremendous about that. So then if you have to first guess on volume and hope that you're right on that element, and then you still have to hope that things work out in the good matchup, you're just cutting off some of your certainty on your roster. And, and so the rest of your roster has to kind of account for that. And so uh, yeah, high game totals is very much, um, very much can be a trap in the way that people just sort of auto flock to them. One of the ways that I, uh, again, this isn't some hard and fast rule, but the way that I kind of try to think of things is, would there be clear opportunities for me to hedge? So if I'm going to go heavy on a particular guy, is there a pretty clear, you know, two or three alternative plays on that team that you can say, if this guy that I like doesn't hit, it probably means one of these other guys is going to hit. So on a team that's regularly distributing the ball to seven, eight, nine, ten guys, um, or I should say seven guys, you know, with everybody seeing at least three plus targets, or nine or 10 guys with, you know, nine or 10 guys seeing at least one target a piece. And just once you start spreading out the volume in that way, it becomes harder to find that hedge as well, because it's like, okay, if, if my guy misses, it could be from one of these fluky other outcomes. And so a team that spreads the ball around isn't automatically a bad thing. The Saints spread the ball around but at the top, things are very tightly concentrated between Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara. But kind of generally speaking, that's that's what we're looking for. And so, um, yeah, the closer we can get to those those the closer we can get to certainty, the better we feel. And so, if a team spreads the ball around, but they have a clear alpha that everything is schemed for, they have a Devonte Adams, they have a DeAndre Hopkins, where week in and week out, you know, it's highly likely that guy is going to see targets. Then who cares what they're doing? behind that guy. Michael Thomas, who cares what they're doing behind that guy? But if it's a team like the Bucks this year that you have a quarterback like Brady who's going to take what the defense gives him and find a way to maneuver around the defense, he's not emphasizing Mike Evans the way that... Uh, and I guess some of that comes down to understanding your players, understanding the personnel that you're working with. But Aaron Rodgers is going to be very trust-based and the longer you work with him, the more you have that trust and the more you're able to kind of mind meld with him on the field. Um, in fact, last night I was watching uh, Devonte Adams doing a film breakdown with NFL network. He'd recorded it, I guess in the off season. And, um, and so he was, just, you know, talk, it was like a 20 minute segment. He was talking about different things and breaking down his routes. And uh, there was, you know, he was talking about how, basically how much you have to do to, 
to earn Rogers' trust and how much time it takes and how much attention to detail you have to have and pay attention to all the little things. And uh, one of the things he mentioned was that if Rogers tells you something, he expects you to know it. And so he gave an example of last season. Uh, they were about to go out on the field and Rogers said to Devonte, you remember how we ran this route against Buffalo in 2014? Uh, that's how I want you to run it this time. And that was it. Devontae Adams had to go out and run it that way. And it was a, you know, kind of a sort of perfectly timed sideline route that had to be run exactly the right way. Uh, another example that Adams gave was uh, sort of a play that was supposed to be a corner route, but because of the leverage that he had on the cornerback, he broke it, he flattened it out more and broke it toward the sideline. He was like 25 yards downfield. And the play was called to go to the corner, but because of the leverage with the cornerback, Adams flattened out the route. And before he even came out of his break, Rodgers was already releasing the ball, also throwing it for Devontae Adams to flatten out the route. And so basically, that sort of setup where Rodgers knows that this is how Adams is going to read this coverage. And so even though this is called to be a corner route, Rodgers is now throwing it as if Adams is going to flatten it out toward the sideline. And Adams sees the same thing and, in fact, does flatten it out toward the sideline. That's the sort of setup that Rodgers has with Devontae Adams. And that's why you see Devontae Adams get so many targets so consistently. That was why you saw Jordy Nelson get so many targets so consistently. Brady has had guys in the past, obviously, that he's leaned on. But generally speaking, Brady philosophically is going to play-by-play determine what is the best way to beat the defense on this particular play. And it's a lot more to do with the designs of the play and then what's going to be available to him within that play. And if they're changing things at the line, oftentimes, you know, you're changing the whole play instead of just alerting a player to a particular route. Obviously, Rodgers will come up and change the play as well, but you're going to see a lot more of Rodgers, you know, adjusting something just to Devontae Adams than you're going to see with Tom Brady and Mike Evans in this new offense. And so on a team like the Bucks, when they're spreading the ball around, you you kind of say like, this is why I've I've been saying like, at the end of this season, I don't, ex- I mean, injuries could affect things, but at the end of this season, I don't expect Mike Evans to be averaging more than seven and a half targets per game. Or we could put that another way and say, in games where Godwin plays, I don't think Mike Evans is going to average more than seven and a half targets per game this year. And so in those spots, you recognize that you're now needing more things to go right. You're needing higher efficiency from this player, and it's going to be harder for this type of player to put up the type of score you're looking for from a Devontae Adams in his outlier scenario. Like Devontae Adams, if everything goes right, you can get 40 plus points. Last year, when Mike Evans, you knew that in certain types of game environments, he had a high shot, high probability shot at 11 targets, 12 targets, 13 targets, 15 targets. In that type of situation, you can get those 40 plus point games. It's okay to take on a little bit more risk. You know, last year, if, if, Evans missed, he could miss hard. But if he hit, he could go for 40-plus. This year, if he misses, he can miss hard, but he's going to have a much harder time going for 40-plus when he hits. So all of those things have to be considered when you're looking at your roster. Um, And then a final example here is the Jaguars in 2019 down the stretch where people just really weren't rostering that offense. But It was similar to the Bills in 2018. We never got the huge blow-up game like we got from the Bills, but that was where I got my Wildcat win from was betting on that Jaguars offense. And it was saying, this isn't the best passing attack, but these guys are really cheap. And there's a narrow distribution of touches. And because there was a narrow distribution of touches in the passing attack, and because they were cheap, you know, I end up with ownership on them, but then high enough ownership that I'm also hedging on Leonard Fournette and picking up the points there. Um, and so, yeah, those are kind of all the little things you think about. And something like the Jags or the Eagles last year, you're likelier to, to be looking for that toward the end of the season because at that point, pricing gets pretty tight. 
and there's a lot less uh, value available. So then when you can say, all right, instead of trying to take, instead of trying to take a a 3K guy and or a 3,800 guy and hope that I guess right on his production, uh, hope that everything lines up and this guy hits on this on this week, you can say, all right, I'm going to bet on this cheap offense. I'm going to bet on three or four guys. I'm going to bet, let's say I'm going to bet on three guys from this cheap offense, two guys from this cheap offense. And then if this cheap offense hits, I'm getting multiple spots right with this, you know, with this salary savings. And so, yeah, just a lot that goes into that. But the core as far as uh, game totals versus, you know, spread the wealth, it's definitely for me, like concentrated distribution of touches is going to have higher value, all things considered, than uh, just high game totals. Because what I'm really looking for is eliminating eliminating things that can go wrong and maximizing my opportunities for things to go right. And so a high game total doesn't guarantee that you're maximizing your opportunities for things to go right. There are other elements that also have to line up for that to really come together. Um, so, yeah. Uh, next question. Um, oh, and I actually didn't spot this one originally, so we have four questions. Uh, JM, can you speak in the recap pod as to how 1.8% or under of players in your mind came to the conclusion of playing Claypool this last week? So I saw a mention, uh, somebody mentioned Larejo123, who's an OWS member who's active in collective. Somebody mentioned um, Larejo123, getting them on to Claypool this last week. So there were certainly some research-based elements you could go to week five um, to that game in collective to see whatever it was that Larejo posted. Uh, if you, um, we had Larejo on a pod last year uh, that's in the DFS 201 um, section of the site. Larejo is not a, not a quote known DFS player or like a big money DFS player, but he's super, super sharp DFS player. And um, last year we had him on a pod because he picked up, I think it was a fourth place finish in the Millie Maker with only three rosters. And so we got on, there were some things that he'd picked up. I think it was actually from the chat pod, some things that he'd picked up that he'd realized he was doing wrong in his play. And he started applying those things um, and just had some really, really sharp, you know, only three rosters, like game theory thinking that's like the type of thinking that large that that allows large field players to make a lot of money. So what is the type of thinking that allows large field players to make a lot of money? Last week, uh, about three, four in the morning on Sunday morning, I was having a really hard time orienting my tournament mind. I was getting way too focused on like who the just optimal plays were. And so I reached out to Cubs fan to see if he had any questions because I figured maybe his questions could jolt me in a different direction. And he was asking about guys like Henry Ruggs. Uh, we mentioned uh, earlier this season that he was asking on the the week that Justin Jefferson first hit when Jefferson was coming off three targets and three targets. He was asking about Justin Jefferson that week. That was the same week Rex Burkhead went for 34 points. He was asking about Burkhead that week. And so it's, it's you know, this large field thinking is who are the plays that nobody's thinking of that can go for 30 plus points? And so um, I could tile that back in. Uh, I recommend Larejo as somebody to pay attention to in collective uh, as far as somebody who's really sharp with that type of thinking because the leverage angles that he posts in collective are angles that you would you would think would be coming from somebody who's playing 150 rosters or 100 plus rosters or 50 plus rosters, whatever. Uh, but it's coming from a guy who plays with a, you know, a tighter core and is just really sharp at finding these, you know, that finding that MME type of thinking of, of who's the type of play who could get you a monster game. People are so scared to take on risk on their roster, but 
it's like this. If week in and week out, you try too hard to protect your roster from being exposed to risk, and week in and week out, you're disappointed at the end of Sunday with your results, it's time to start forcing yourself to do something a little bit different. The way I like to look at it, the way I've looked at it anytime I've been in a rut with my play is basically what I've been doing hasn't been working. And the thought is always like, I'm going to be upset with myself at the end of Sunday if I take this risk and it doesn't pay off. But you have to shift out of that thinking because you're upset at the end of Sunday that you didn't take that risk. Realistically, the risks are what are going to get you to first place. And so you have to start looking for that type of thinking. And so a player like Larejo, you're you're not necessarily putting a Claypool type of player on every roster, but you are looking for the opportunities for those types of players. So I'll get back to Claypool specifically in a moment, but that reminds me of the Jonas Gray weekend in 2014 where Jonas Gray hadn't topped out at more than, I think, six or seven carries in a game. And they were playing the Colts that week. The Colts were really attackable up the gut. We know that the Patriots are opponent-specific. We know that they mix and match their running backs in different ways and uh, kind of kind of play based on what the opponent gives them. And I wrote up Jonas Gray that week as a really strong, sneaky bet for a big game and for heavier usage and kind of laid out all the factors and uh, I ended up that was I was still single entry at the time and ended up not using Jonas Gray myself, but I got lots of texts and and um, Twitter mentions that day thanking me for helping people you know take down big tournament days because Jonas Gray scored three touchdowns and put up over two hundred yards and was under two percent owned, and so it's it's thinking about. Again, it's hard to pull the trigger on those. I've experienced that myself. But it's thinking about what what could happen in this game if something goes right, as opposed to thinking about we've conditioned ourselves to think about what could go wrong in a game, but what could go right. And it's okay to have one or two players like that on a roster. So Claypool obviously got bailed out enormously by Deontay Johnson getting hurt in that game. But before that, um, the thinking, I can, again, I haven't read what Larejo posted, but um, for me, I went into last week really liking Deontay Johnson. And then I liked Ebron. And I covered both of those throughout the week. And one of the reasons was because against the Eagles, we sometimes see these games where the opponent just stops trying to run the ball and just throws and throws and throws. And so even without play volume necessarily piling up on the whole, this team ends up racking up 40 pass attempts, 45 pass attempts, 50 pass attempts, because against this Eagles run defense, they eventually just stop trying to run. And so it was already a good spot, and Deontay was underpriced, and Ebron was underpriced for the upside, not for the floor, but for the upside. And then on top of that, you could look at it and say, okay, there's a chance that there's just a lot a lot more passing from Pittsburgh in this game. Who else might benefit as a result? And as of you know, I, this was a player whose salary I wasn't familiar with because who's looking at this guy. But as of probably one or two in the morning on on Sunday morning, week five, uh, I was getting pretty close to putting James Washington on some of my rosters and went and looked at snap counts. In fact, spotted uh, Claypool's snap counts when looking at Washington's snap counts and kind of made a mental note of him uh, and then went and looked at Washington's price and he was 4,900 and that was enough for me to move off of him. Uh, I kind of ditched that idea at that point because that was more risk and more guesswork than I wanted to take on at that price tag. If Washington had been 3,900 or 4,100, he probably would have ended up on a few of my builds. And so I didn't get over to Claypool because of that, but Claypool was playing you know, 25, 30% of the snaps, has a lot of upside, 
um, and had already looked good the previous game when um, when Deontay got hurt. Didn't see nearly as many targets, but had looked good, had been on the field, and he's a rookie, so expecting his role to grow. And so 1.8%, this, this wasn't people who were just so sharp and looked at this and was like, and were like, man, Claypool is going to smash in this spot. You know, uh, it, it took Deontay getting hurt for that to even happen. But it's people kind of looking for they weren't they weren't looking on necessarily relying on Deontay getting hurt or needing that to happen, but kind of looking at a situation and saying, okay, if the Steelers pass a lot, I could see Claypool being on the field fifty percent of the time. I could see him getting uh, three or four targets and. When we think about three or four targets, we tend to think, uh, by we, I mean the greater DFS community, we tend to think, oh, well, that's not good because that's that's not enough opportunity. And I'm very opportunity focused myself. And so, again, you know, even in large field play, I'm less less likely to go to that type of guy. But if you're somebody like Cubs fan... You're not looking. You're not looking at the fact that Rugs hit for his hundred yards on only two targets. What did he hit for a hundred yards and a touchdown in Week Five? Um, you're not looking at that and saying, "Oh, well, he did it on only three targets." You're looking at it and saying, "Yeah, he did it on only three targets. Who cares?" I was rostering him because I'm looking for guys who can get me thirty points. I'm looking for guys who have speed, who have big play upside. Um, and so kind of the larger field tournaments you get into, the more risk you can take on that way. Or in smaller field stuff, if you're building with like a really tight, you know, really sharp pool um, or you're game stacking and it's like, okay, you know, I feel good about this game stack and I can get four or five guys right at once if this one spot goes well. Now, how can I gain, you know, additional leverage on the field? How can I gain additional ground? Um, so I think that's how a play like Claypool ends up owned at all. And I would imagine there were some people who just took him without doing any research and just saw that he'd had whatever it was, three catches for uh, a lot of yards the week before. And, um, I think a touchdown, maybe not a touchdown, but you know, some people are just looking at box scores and they're not looking at any deeper numbers. Um, and they're just saying, Oh, well, Claypool feels good. And they feel really smart when, uh, Claypool goes for 45 points or whatever it was, but that's not repeatable. That's they're They're not going to have sustainable success. Whatever they won last week, they're going to give back. But there are other people who are looking for plays like that and actually looking for the angles on them. And so, uh, you know, again, going back to Cubs fan in week five, he was asking me about Cam Akers. He was asking me about J.K. Dobbins. Um, he was asking me about Henry Ruggs. So I don't think he ended up with any Akers or Dobbins, but he was trying to get a feel for those types of guys. He was trying to understand how much is this guy on the field? What's this guy look like? What is this guy's potential upside? Because if you're thinking about upside instead of thinking about floor, you start looking at things a little bit differently. So Claypool is not the best example of it because, again, it was a guy who projected for only 25 to 30% of the snaps. But bigger picture, that's kind of how those really low-owned guys um, end up doing what they do and actually being on some rosters. So one of the things I've been doing the last couple of weeks to try to account for this uh, is, and try to make sure that I'm not overlooking anything, is I've been making a list for myself of which players have a non-fluky shot at a 30-point game. And so uh, last week, I did not get Brandon Cooks on that list. Uh, Brandon Cooks, again, ended up on uh, about 5% of my builds because of, uh, you know, building around the Texans a little, a little bit. But, um, and then the week before I didn't have Mixon. But that's been the goal is to kind of start looking for those types of plays, the Mixon, the Cooks, and challenge myself to expand my thinking beyond just what the research says, but to also say, okay, now beyond the research, if things go right for certain players, uh, who has a realistic, like, non-fluky shot at 30 points? And, um, so, yeah, again, I don't think Claypool's the best example of that, but that, you know, brings up a good discussion, and that's kind of how I see all of that. Uh, next question is from Nihal Advani. Nihal, if I'm getting your name wrong, let us know, because you ask enough questions, I'd love to get it right. Uh, I'm predominantly single-entry, three-max player. I have one main roster that I enter into all the high-dollar single-entry tournaments, 
with my other two lineups going into the 150 power sweep. Uh, the question then is, how do I build my rosters and player alloc- how I build my roster and player allocations? Um, basically, thinking about percentage of bankroll bet on individual players as opposed to percentage exposure bet on individual players. So, um, if I have three rosters and one of them's got a lot more money on it, how do how do I balance that? Uh, And I think it's an interesting question. Like, I think that the sharpest way to approach things is sort of the way that that you were talking about in your question here, Nihal, which is taking uh, that, uh, taking things through the lens of how much, how much, how much, how many actual dollars you're spending, human dollars, American dollars you're spending on an individual player. So if a player is on, one out of three rosters, but that one roster accounts for 70% of the money you're spending that week. You're betting on that player with 70% of your bankroll for the week, and that's how I would look at it. So it gets a little complicated when you're talking about just three rosters because if you if you have a guy on, let's say that that one roster is worth 70% of your week's bankroll and your other two rosters are, you know, worth 15% and 15% a piece. At that point, you don't necessarily want to then say, like you don't want to treat those other two rosters as if they're just totally different from that first roster because if you like these players enough to get 70% of your bankroll onto them, you might like them enough to get 100% of your bankroll onto them. And so you don't want to sort of force yourself off of those you know, this player you really like on these other teams just because you're already highly exposed to him on this one roster because it's still about player combinations. It's still about rosters. You need everything to come together on a roster. And so if you have a couple players you really like, you still want to get them on all three of those rosters. The way that I tend to actually look at this is, and I don't, and I don't think too deeply into this. And I guess, um, for me, since like let's see, since I've been doing this mini multi-entry stuff since the start of 2019, it's typically been last year it was mostly like 19 to 26 rosters in the Wildcat. Every once in a while, 14 rosters. Uh, this year, I've started doing more like 12 rosters. Uh, that way, I can keep my weekly bankroll the same. Typically, I put about 10k in play. I can keep my weekly bankroll the same, but the Wildcat is so top-heavy. To where if you don't get like top three, four, five spots, it's almost not worth having played it. And um, so after taking it down last year and making that a goal and then hitting that goal, um, but then also recognizing like, okay, if I don't hit that goal, if I don't hit first place again, I'm bleeding out bankroll a, a lot of weeks because you have to finish so close to the top uh, in order to be making money in that tournament. Uh, it's just a really heavy, top-heavy payout structure, and so this year I've wanted to get uh, some of my some more rosters into some other areas, um, some more three-entry max, five-entry max, etc. And so, and without expanding the bankroll, and so uh, I've cut down over the last couple of weeks to twelve teams in the wildcat, which then gives me I don't know about forty percent of my weekly bankroll allocated to there. Uh, and then allows me to still take another 60% and apply it to other contests. But the way that I've been looking at that is I'm actually looking at my exposures in an individual tournament to such an extent that last week there was a set of builds that I really didn't like for the Wildcat. The Wildcat is uh, typically about 5K entries. And uh, I felt that it there was actually there were some builds that I felt were just like too sharp to win the wildcat and so I put those in some like 200 entry type of tournaments 200 entry size tournaments uh, because they were really sharp builds so you know you can look at it and say you know what this roster just doesn't take enough risks to try to to actually take down this tournament with 5000 entries in it but in this other tournament that I'm in with uh, you know, a, a less top-heavy payout structure and a smaller field, 
This is a really sharp build. It has a shot at first place, and if it doesn't get there, it has a good shot at cashing. So I'm going to put this roster into here. And then I had some other rosters that were just like, they were really targeting first place in like a 50,000 entry tournament as opposed to a 5,000 entry tournament. What I mean by that is they took on more risk than I than I needed to or wanted to take on in the Wildcat. And so on those rosters, uh, I kind of looked for, you know, I built them for the Wildcat, but then, if, you know, as I was settling things in place and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, I realized, okay, and it was actually a, a block of four DAC rosters um, that I'd kind of built this one roster and then kind of built it in four different ways. And so I ended up going and entering it in, you know, a place where I could put in four rosters and compete in a larger field uh, tournament because whatever it was on those rosters, I felt better about the way that it worked for like a, a much larger field tournament than the way it worked for the Wildcat. And so um, that's kind of unique. I'm not always doing it like that where it's different rosters and different tournament types, but uh, I'm wanting to look at how my rosters work together as a block more than how much of my U.S. dollars I'm allocating on individual players. So in the Wildcat, I'm going to look at how do these 12 rosters work together so that if some of them are failing, that increases the likelihood of some of the other ones doing well. That's obviously what we mean by this whole roster block thing. And there's, there's going to be some players that I'm going to have on you know, one or two, sometimes three players that I'll have on all 12 rosters or eight out of 12 rosters. And then you sort of start balancing and hedging those plays from there. Uh, but then when I get over to another tournament that's maybe like a five-entry max or three-entry max, I'm then wanting to figure out how my three rosters in that tournament work together. And so I guess you could phrase the long-term thinking as wanting to be plus EV in each individual tournament. And so I'm less concerned about the week-to-week bankroll and the the week-to-week investment on an individual play so much as I'm uh, it's like okay how do I maximize my EV in the wildcat and then how do I maximize my EV in the game changer and how do I maximize my EV in the power sweep and so uh, again typically that's more with like a set of 12 rosters that are going to be allocated differently into different contests as opposed to like completely different builds for different contest types. Um, and that's really just uh, different builds for different contest types works as well. I just don't have uh, enough time to really do that to the level that I would want to do it. Um, but yeah, so I don't actually think myself about how much money I have on an individual player so much as I'm thinking about how my set of builds work in a given tournament. That's not necessarily a a better way to look at things, but it's just the way that makes the most sense for my brain. And so that, you know, the way that you mentioned it with paying attention to, uh, you know, actual bankroll allocation on players, that makes a lot of sense and is very sharp. But there's also, there are also other ways to look at it. So find the way that makes the most sense for you because the, the goal is still just to be plus EV over time. And that still comes down to, how you're putting your rosters together from one one tournament to another. Last question is from Brandon Mundell. Uh, started out thanking us for the hard work that we put in. You are welcome, Brandon. Uh, it's a joy to do it. Almost always a joy to do it. The, <laughs> um, the work stuff, as I call it, the admin stuff, the business stuff is not always a joy, but we are past that stuff. And each year that stuff gets easier and easier. I say we're past it. We're past it for the rest of this year. I'm, I'm working on Mondays and that should not be bleeding into Tuesdays and Wednesdays the rest of this year, which means I will be uh, working eight or nine hours a day, sometimes 10 hours a day, as opposed to 14 or 16 hours, seven days a week. Uh, really very much looking forward to that. But all that to say, you're welcome for the <laughs> for the work that we put in. Um, Brandon said, I had my first 200 plus score on DK in week four. Feels like a lot of the lessons and info I picked up over the past seasons is starting to pay off. Uh, listening to the chat pod got me thinking about my play on FanDuel. 
I started playing MME again after switching strictly to single entry, three entry max tournaments. Uh, last week, I played the five cent 150 max tournament just to get a feel for building lineups with the MME mindset again. The question then is what do, uh, or, or sorry, what is the most optimal way to build stacks for FanDuel scoring? Last week's last week, almost all of my stacks were one quarterback, two pass catchers, and one or two opposing pass catchers or full game stacks. While there is obvious merit to building lineups these ways, I'm wondering if I'm leaving touchdown equity on the table and thus valuable FanDuel points. Since touchdowns are the key to posting monster scores, what do you th- uh, do? You think skinny stacks such as one quarterback, one pass catcher, and one opposing pass catcher is the ideal strategy on FanDuel? Or do you think my my original way is the best strategy for putting myself in position to win tournaments? So uh, I would think that this is the type of question that merits like some real data, like somebody to say what has won tournaments on DraftKings and what has won tournaments on FanDuel. I would actually imagine that somebody's done that. I just don't know where to find that. But your instincts, well, actually two things. One, the depth of thinking to say, okay, what's different on this site? What is the game on this site? How do I win on this site? Uh, is excellent. And your instincts as far as what would change on FanDuel are excellent. FanDuel, as we talk about, no PPR, so... Uh, or, or sorry, no PPR, no bonuses, no no bonuses for 100 yards, uh, which makes touchdowns and yards weigh more than they weigh on DraftKings. Because of that, uh, as you're pointing out, with touchdowns weighed more heavily on FanDuel, and no opportunity to pick up those extra, you know, all those extra points from just stacking a team and getting all of the catches, uh, does it make more sense to go with skinnier stacks on FanDuel to basically say, well, uh, you know, it's harder to get tons of monster scores from one team on FanDuel because you need touchdowns and touchdowns are uh, are limited. There are only going to be a certain number of touchdowns to go about on a single team. So I think that's really sharp thinking. I think that there are probably situations where a heavier stack on FanDuel makes sense. So a narrow distribution of touches, a team that uses you know multiple guys heavily in the red zone. Um, Derrick Henry plus A.J. Brown plus Ryan Tannehill. You can always go back through historical data to, to see what have these players done in tandem. So... A.J. Brown, Ryan Tannehill, Derrick Henry have had a number of games where they all hit together over the last over their last 14 games. I think they've had three different games where they all hit together. And because they're a low-volume passing attack, I kind of I did that research uh, a couple hours ago, kind of digging through historical DraftKings combos for those guys and put that in the player grid. But since they're uh, a lower-volume passing attack, that means that their scores would be even better, even more valuable on FanDuel because you're losing fewer points from those those PPRs and those bonuses than you would be losing from like a different set of, of players. So there are situations where three players on one team could do really well. Jameis Winston plus Mike Evans plus Chris Godwin last year would have had potential to be a really nice stack. And realistically, it kind of goes back to what we talked about at the top of this week's podcast. There, these things aren't automatic. It's not automatic that you want to stack a high total game. And it's not automatic that you want to take multiple pass catchers or multiple, multiple pieces from an offense that you like because every offense is a little bit different. But... I think that the, the the way to kind of phrase this is to say that on FanDuel, there are fewer times where 
a three-man stack or a three-man plus two is going to be the optimal way to use that salary. So the the one other element here that should be noted is that part of the reason we do this is because there's also a player block element here where if you're taking three guys from an offense, you are eliminating more guesswork, especially if it's a somewhat narrow distribution of touches. You're eliminating some of the guesswork because you can say, if this offense hits, then I'm in good shape. And it doesn't matter, you know, if the quarterback gets 30 and wide receiver one gets 12 and wide receiver two gets 28, you're still getting your 70 points, you know, that you were targeting from these three guys in this example. So that side of things remains intact on FanDuel. You're you're betting on an offense, and so you're eliminating some of the guesswork. You're maximizing your chances at, at just grabbing these points. And even if one of the players, quote, misses, you're still in position to hit because this block of players is doing what you needed it to do. Um, so that's still an element to think about on FanDuel. It doesn't just strictly come down to you know, individual performance as far as why we, why we build that way. But yeah, I would say, I would say phrase it as every situation is unique, even on DraftKings. And as you move over to FanDuel, there become fewer situations in which the full three-man stack or the three-man plus two makes as much sense. Another thought here too is, uh, this is just kind of a side note, but I think that people, when they do a three-man stack, they kind of feel like they have to bring it back with two pieces from the other side. But again, every situation is different. There are times where it it can make sense to put together a three-man stack and bring it back with nobody from the other side. Uh, If you feel really good about this one offense with a narrow distribution of touches and you don't feel as great about the offense on the other side that spreads the ball around that can make sense as well. You don't have to try to guess and and open yourself up to that that guesswork. In fact, you could stack this offense and then stack another offense from a different game that these two don't necessarily correlate, but if you feel really good about the guesswork you're eliminating in both spots, you put yourself in good shape. So uh, yeah, every situation is different, but definitely um, FanDuel, you know, there are going to be fewer opportunities where it's as optimal to get the bigger stack because again, as you pointed out, touchdowns are limited and um, touchdowns are weighed more heavily on FanDuel. So uh, yeah, that does it for this week. You guys in the future already knew that this was about a a 53, 54 minute podcast this week. Um, I have now learned that it is about 6 a.m. and I am going to shut down, get, get a little bit of sleep and get ready for a weekend of building, a Saturday night of building. So thanks for hanging out. I will see you guys on the site this weekend. I will see you in your inbox Sunday morning, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards Sunday afternoon.